Father, again, we are, we are grateful to be together. And even in this reading that we have just had, we are reminded of your faithfulness. That you called the people to yourself and they showed themselves incapable of fulfilling their calling, fulfilling their election, fulfilling their vocation on behalf of the world. You love them. You serve them, you provided for them, you blessed them with every good thing. And through it all, you continued to uphold your covenant faithfulness. And yet they kicked and they rebelled and they wandered and they pursued that which is not God. And though your hand was set against them and you uh, acted righteously against their impudence and their rebellion and unfaithfulness, yet you never lost sight of your covenant. You never lost sight of your intent. You would indeed arise and you would vindicate your people and you would cause Israel to be Israel indeed, that in their own fulfillment they could become the light of the nations. And we thank you, Father, that these things all are yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. And so we pray that he would be glorified in our hearts and in our midst in this time. Lead out our thoughts and again, Father, direct us in our consideration. May Christ be made glorious. May we see truly your glory in his face in our time together. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, my intent today is to do um, a flyover taking us from where we've been so far with um, the Exodus account, really up to the point where Israel was ready for uh, the time of the monarchy. So this is going to take us through the whole wilderness period and then through the preparatory time in the land leading up to the monarchy. And where we left off was with the renewal of the covenant in, in Exodus. And, and with that renewal of the covenant, the balance of the book of Exodus then is devoted to uh, the building of the tabernacle. And Exodus ends with the glory of God descending and filling the tabernacle. And then the sons of Israel um, are, in a sense, ready to set out. They're ready to make their way to Canaan, and Yahweh's going to go with them. And this tabernacle that has been constructed will go with them as well. So in their preparation for departing from Sinai, all of this, all we've been to so far is just at Sinai. But in their preparation to depart from Sinai, uh, we see that God is provisioning them both logistically and also in terms of relational provision. Leviticus, the, the Hebrew title of the book Leviticus, Yikra, it means, and he called. That's the way the book begins. And the Lord called to Moses and said. And in Leviticus, we see that relational provision. Leviticus also is set at Sinai. Israel has not departed yet. The sanctuary is built. God has given to Moses the general prescription for the priesthood. And in the book of Leviticus, which a lot of people don't 
spend much time in because it's just a whole bunch of sacrificial stuff and rules and regulations and cleanliness issues and all of that. It's like, this is boring, tedious, why do I want to read this? But it was a part of, again, God defining and providing Israel with that which would preserve the relationship, the provision that they would need in the relationship going forward. So it comes both in resource uh, centered in the people's lives with one another. All of this is centered in the priesthood, but ultimately definition for their cleanliness as a people, um, not physical cleanliness per se, but their cleanliness covenantally, how they will live in relation to one another, how they will live in relation to God. Uh, what it will mean to remain ceremonially clean through their diet, through their lifestyle, through their interaction with death, what disease, uh, whatever it may happen to be, because they will, they must be a clean people to be with God, to worship Him, to have Him dwelling in their midst, and the priesthood was central in maintaining uh, that cleanliness and providing the remedy where it was uh, you know, done away with, as well as also just violations under the covenant, sin offerings, uh, all of the various offerings that would be necessary for the people to retain that covenantal cleanliness, that covenantal right relationship with God. So that's what we see in the book of Leviticus, God giving them that provision for maintaining the relationship in all of the various facets of that. Numbers, which comes next, Bamidbar in Hebrew, in the wilderness or in the desert. It's in the book of Numbers that you actually see Israel depart from Sinai. So the first nine chapters of Numbers provides the second provision, which is this logistical provision. And that's where God assigns uh, the, the tribes, how they're to set themselves up around the encampment of Israel. Uh, the sons of Levi, Koath, Merari, and Gershon, they're each assigned, their clans associated with them are each assigned aspects of tending to, setting up, tearing down, transporting the sanctuary. God provides all that definition to them uh, in the first part of Numbers as well. So he puts all of the logistical pieces in place for the camp to move and, and set up and tear down and who goes first and how do you, and, and all of that comes in the beginning of Numbers. And then you come to chapter 10 and that's where you see the people setting out. So we'll pick this up just to read a little bit of this um, Verse 33, this is the end of chapter 10 in Numbers. And I'm going to be picking sections going through here, so we'll be flying through this pretty quickly. But it says, Thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey. This is in the second month of the second year. Remember, they arrived at Sinai in the third month of, obviously, the first year. So they basically spent a year at Sinai after they came out of Egypt. Now they're departing finally from Sinai. They set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered. 
and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, return, O Yahweh, to the myriads, thousands of Israel. So this is their departure, again on a note of triumph. But no sooner do they leave than issues of unbelief and rebellion and disobedience begin to set in again. And that's thematic throughout the book of Numbers. So we see right away in chapter 11 that they're grumbling about the manna. They're grumbling, they're complaining about the provision that they have. And God causes a fire to go out and burn around the outskirts of the camp as a warning to them. And they call that place Tabara, a place of burning. And that, even that doesn't get their attention. They, again, are complaining. There's nothing to eat here. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt. It was so wonderful in Egypt, all the good foods that we had, and life was so great. And all we have is this man, and we hate it. We need meat. We have no meat to eat. So once again, God brings quail into the camp. But this time, he basically floods the camp with quail. And he says, you'll eat it not one day, not two days. You'll eat it a whole month until it's coming out of your nostrils. I'm going to stuff it into you. And, and, while, and while this is happening to you, then God brings a plague on them and kills a whole bunch of them. And so the place becomes known as, as I say here in the notes, it becomes known as Kibroth Hatava, graves of greediness. The greediness, the, 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 the longing for meat that the people had, God stuffs them with it and then he kills them. Well, that's the way their journey begins. And then they set out from there. And then chapter 12, you have uh, Miriam and Aaron rebelling against Moses' authority and saying, who do you think you are? You know, we're all holy. You know, why, why do you have this privilege? And God strikes Miriam with leprosy and she's sent outside of the camp for a week. And the, the camp can't move out until she's rendered ceremonially clean and comes back into the camp. Then in chapter, they arrive in the wilderness of Paran. That's where they camp. And that's where the, the whole fate of Israel changes. That's where uh, Moses sends out the 12 spies to spy out the land. And there's really two purposes for that. One is to encourage the people that when these spies come back, they'll come back with firsthand knowledge that what God said is true. It is an abundant, fertile, rich land a land in which they will live in cities they don't have to build and they'll drink from wells they don't have to dig and they'll eat from fields that they don't have to cultivate. And the spies come back um, with a cluster of grapes on a pole. It's such a big cluster of grapes that they actually carry it on a pole. Eshkol, a cluster. And the second thing that comes out of this is a testing of the people's faith. Because the land is filled with fortified cities and militant, very strong national groups. The Jebusites, the Hittites, the Hivites, right? The Canaanites. And when they come back, ten of the spy, all of the 12 spies say, yes, everything God said about the land is true. But the people there are like giants. They're, they're massive. They're mighty. We can't possibly defeat them. That's the report of ten of the spies. And you see this in Numbers 13 and 14. So they've just left, and already now the people, their hearts melt, and they say, let's appoint new leaders to take us back to Egypt. They're ready to kill Moses. And only Joshua and Caleb are saying, no, don't, don't go there. 
The Lord has promised to give us the land. He will give it to us. Yes, the people are mighty there. Yes, their cities are fortified. But the Lord has pledged this land to us. He will give it to us. Stand firm. Be resolute. Trust the Lord. But they don't. They don't. And so Moses again intervenes, if you look in Numbers 14, and look at the way that he pleads. Remember again when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I'll show you my goodness. And he gives this proclamation of his covenant faithfulness. Well, that's the way Moses now pleads on behalf of Israel. Chapter 14 verse 11 it says the lord said to moses how long will this people spurn me how long will they not trust me despite all the signs that i've performed in their midst i'll smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and i will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they the same sort of thing he said to him before but moses said to the lord then the egyptians will hear of it for by for by thy own strength you you brought up this people from their midst And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. He wasn't able to keep his covenant. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray you, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you declared to me. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. This means covenant faithfulness, holding to the covenant relationship with integrity, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and yet by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. That was God's own self-proclamation of his goodness to Moses. And so pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even to now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And surely all the men who've seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and not listened to my voice, they shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And so the people had said, oh, you know, that we can never prevail and our children are going to get slaughtered. We'll go into the land and what's going to happen to our children there? And God says, the children that you worried about, they're going to go in and take the land. All of you who disbelieve me are going to die. And so this becomes a huge turning point where now God says, as you have now tempted me, Now I'm going to try you for 40 years. You're going to wander in the wilderness until all this generation has died. No, none of the adult generation that I've brought out of Egypt will enter the land except Joshua and Caleb. And we'll see even Moses himself doesn't enter the land. So the 40 years in the wilderness is God's punishment for this rebellion at the report of the 12 spies. It's a turning point in Israel's history. Now they're going to be 40 years in the wilderness until that whole generation has died. And God says, your children will go up and take the land. And of course, they will be adults by then, right? 
But that's this turning point that comes in the book of Numbers. So as we go on from there, now in chapter 16, we have, the, we have Korah's rebellion. Now the Levites, remember the Levites stood with Moses back in Exodus with the golden calf. But now the Levites are rebelling against Moses, saying, who do you think you are? We're all holy. All the people are holy. Why do you have this unique distinction? And remember the episode where they all have to present themselves with their censers and, and the ground opens up and swallows them and them and their households? And yet even then, the next day, the people are back to grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. And God instructs Aaron to take a rod from each of the 12 tribes and write the name of the tribes on that rod and then take those rods and put them in before the Ark of the Testimony in the tabernacle, right? Including a rod for Aaron, for the Levites. And when they go in the next day, when Aaron goes in, his rod, his almond rod has sprouted leaves and budded and has almond blossoms and actually has ripe almonds on it. And God was saying, Aaron is my man, Aaron and Moses, not all the Levites. The Levites have the privilege of caring for the sanctuary, but Aaron is Aaron and, and his sons are my priests. And that rod is now put in the ark, right, as a testimony against Israel. Remember there was a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the broken tablets that were put in the, that's the rod that budded. So that's Numbers chapter 16. So the whole book of Numbers is this constant unfolding of unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness, and yet God continuing to preserve the essence of the covenant people even while that generation is dying. Through all that unfaithfulness, God shows himself faithful. And, and the climactic thing for me in the book of Numbers is the Balaam episode. As they've come now to, uh, at the end of that 40 years, they've come to the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan. It's there that they uh, enter into the, the battle with uh, Sihon and Og, the two kings. And they defeat him in battle. And the Moabites hear about this. And they're like, you know, these people, what, what are we going to do with them? They're filling the land. They're, they're, they're settling in our land. And so Balak, the Moabite king, sends for a Mesopotamian soothsayer named Balaam, who he knows has some sort of connection with, you know, as a soothsayer, the god of the Israelites. And so he commissions Balaam to come and to curse the people, curse the people of Israel. And this is Numbers 22 through 24. And God won't let Balaam do that. Balaam initially says, I can only do what the Lord allows me to do, but I'll go and inquire of him. And it's this three thing, you know, plays over three different times. But the climax of it comes after, uh, again, uh, Balak tries to pay Balaam and, and, and you know, give him great riches in order to curse the people. And Balaam is not able to do that. God won't let him curse the people. And the third time when he's confronted by Balak, um, he doesn't even go to inquire of the Lord. Balaam doesn't. He just gives this song of praise. So this is in Numbers 24, and this becomes a huge part, again, of Israel's hope, it's, it's even its messianic hope. This is verse 14 of chapter 
um, 24. He says, Behold, I am going to my people. Come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel for the sake of his people, the Moabites. And Balaam says, I will advise you what this people, the Israelites, will do to your people in the days to come. And he took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. But a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir its enemies also a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. For one from Jacob shall have dominion and shall destroy the remnant from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at the Kenite. Um, Balaam is up on this high point overlooking the land. He looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring. Your nest is set on the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. How long shall Asher keep you captive? And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim and shall afflict Asher and shall afflict Eber, and they shall also come to destruction. Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his own way. So in that proclamation there, you see the promise of dominion coming. And this idea of a star arising in Jacob became a part of Israel's messianic hope. Even one of the, the claimants to be Messiah of Israel, Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, was referring back to this prophecy in Israel's history. So Numbers shows us, again, this continuing pattern. Israel moving through the land, them dying, increasing you know, uh, difficulties, God continuing to punish the violators and yet preserving the covenant relationship. And it reaches this high point with Balaam where he seeks to prophesy against the people and God won't allow him. And in fact, Balaam ends up speaking of the triumph of God on behalf of Israel against their enemies. So that then takes us to the book of Deuteronomy, which again, now we're, it's set in one place. It's set on the plains of Moab. And the Hebrew name for Deuteronomy is um, Devarim, words, words or utterances. Most of these English titles for these books come from um, a, a Greek sort of idea, um, Obviously, Exodus is obvious, Numbers, but Deuteronomy, a second law or a second iteration of God's law. But Devarim is the Hebrew title, and it's a series of discourses by Moses set in the prophetic style of Israel where the prophet will proclaim, um, he'll remind his hearers of their past with God what God has done, who they are in God's purposes up to that point, what God has done in bringing them to that point as a way for then the hearers to understand their present circumstance, the meaning of their present circumstance, how they got there and where this is ultimately going. 
And that's what you see in Deuteronomy. It's just a, a whole series of utterances on the part of Moses. So I'd like to just look at, um, real quickly, if you look in chapter 5 through 7, here you have Moses reminding them of the covenant. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He didn't make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those who are alive here today. This pertains to us, not just to our fathers, is what he's saying. And then he goes through and and repeats a lot of what we see in Exodus 20, the Decalogue. God bringing them out of Egypt. I am your God. You are to have no other God. It's a a reiterating of the essence of the covenant. And that takes us through chapter 5. And then in chapter 6... It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking. That you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son, your grandsons, might fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes, his commandments, to keep his Torah, his covenant, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now here's the Shema, Israel's Shema, here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is our God. Yahweh is one. This was Israel's central confessional prayer. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, the God of all the earth. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your sons. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you these great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you didn't fill, cisterns which you didn't dig, vineyards, olive trees which you didn't plant, you eat or are satisfied, then watch yourself lest you forget Yahweh, lest you forget him. And then in chapter 7, God just reminds them again of their unique election. It says, when I bring you into the land that you are entering to possess it, when the Lord your God shall deliver these nations before you and you defeat them, then you're utterly to destroy them. Make no covenant with them. Show no favor to them. Do not allow yourself to get sucked in by them, to be led away from me. Don't intermarry with them. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you. He will quickly destroy you. Verse 6, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, consecrated to him. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. This is their election out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number. You were the fewest of the peoples, but because he loved you and he kept the oath by which he swore to your forefathers. 
Thus he brought you out by a mighty hand and, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that he, your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his covenant fidelity to a thousandth generation with those who love him. So Deuteronomy is this constant reminder to Israel of the faithfulness of their God and bringing them to that point. And that when they enter and take the land, that they need to be faithful to him. And we come to chapter 28, and that's the chapter of the blessings and the cursings. If you keep the covenant, here are all the blessings that God will rain on you. But if you don't keep the covenant, here are the curses that will come upon you, all the curses that God has brought on the nations. And Moses says, behold, I said in front of you, blessing and cursing, life and death, choose life, that it will go well with you when you enter into the land. And then in chapter 30 is God promising that a day will come when all these things, he says, cursings are coming on you. You won't keep my covenant. But when all these things, blessings and cursings have come upon you, then a day will come when I will circumcise your hearts and give you hearts to know me and to love me and to be faithful to me. A promise of a day of covenant renewal. And then again, that leads into chapter 31 where God says, I know the hearts of these people that already they're conspiring against me. Even though now again they're saying all that the Lord has commanded we will do. Their hearts are conspiring against me. So compose this song and teach them this song that it'll be a reminder to them throughout their generations. And that's what we read, the the second song of Moses. So then Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying outside of the land and the people prepared to enter in. So as I say in the notes, Deuteronomy is very important. It's the climax of the Pentateuch. It's the last of the five books of Moses, but it ties together the great features of Israel's existence and shows their covenantal significance. Those features include the exodus, the wilderness period, the era of the judges, the later monarchy, the future exile, and ultimately Israel's restoration in the Messiah. All of those things are bound up in Deuteronomy. As Moses rehearses their past, explains what's coming immediately, where ultimately your life with God is going, and yet he will renew the covenant at some future day. So Deuteronomy is this broad, sweeping look at all of Israel's history culminating with the Messiah. Well, then comes Joshua, and Joshua is the one who replaces Moses as the leader of the people, and Joshua is the one who's commissioned to bring the people into the land. And the first thing that that Joshua does is send spies into the land, particularly to Jericho. Jericho is the fortified city immediately across the river from where they're camped. That's going to be the first stronghold that they're going to take. Jericho is a fortified city. It's a trade city. There's a lot of goods and money that goes through there, so it's heavily fortified. It's got a strong army, high walls. And once again, these spies go in, right? And that's the Rahab incident. I'm not going to go through all of that. But Rahab herself says what Israel is, is afraid of. But Rahab believes, we know that your God has given you the city. When he does that, remember me, remember my family. When God gives you the city. So then the Israelites are led by Joshua to cross the Jordan River. And it's another Red Sea episode. He has the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, go down into the river, and when they do, the Jordan River stops and and heaps up upstream, so it's dry ground. 
and they stand there while all of the sons of Israel pass across the river. And then he tells them, get 12 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to each gather a stone from the middle of the river, take it over inside on the, the, the Canaan side of the river and build a monument with these 12 stones. So that in future generations, when your sons say, what is that monument there? You can say, this was the Lord delivering us, bringing us into the land on dry land through the river. Another Red Sea episode. And so when they're passed through, then the priests come up and then the river again flows through. And that becomes Gilgal. But anyway, so then you have the episode of the taking of of the city and the marching around the city for seven days. They're not an army. They're not fortified. They get mocked and scorned marching around this fortified city with people on the walls seeing these Israelites marching around with some funny golden box they're carrying and these funny priests and these funny clothes. And on the seventh day, they do it seven times and then the priests blow the trumpet and the walls come down and they take the city. And it's a great triumph. But essentially what you see in Joshua is Yahweh's triumph in giving them the land. It, you, you see them, you know, the northern campaign, the southern campaign, then the apportioning of the land amongst the 12 tribes. But through it all, again, is the same sense of foreboding. It's not going to go well. And Joshua ends like, like it was with Deuteronomy, with Joshua again rehearsing with the people. All of God's good promises have been fulfilled. He's kept his word. You're settled in the land. But take heed to yourselves. You need to keep God's covenant. Oh, yes, all that the Lord has, has commanded, we will surely do. And he says, no, I know you will not be able to keep the word of the Lord. It's the same thing that Moses put in front of them. So Joshua ends on that note of, again, an expectation that God has given them rest, he settled them, and yet it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well for him. And then that leads us into the book of Judges, which is the period from the settling of the land until the establishing of the monarchy, the kingship in Israel. They've conquered the land, they're settled in the land, the land's been apportioned amongst the 12 tribes, And now we see this period in Israel in which Yahweh is king. Israel has no human king. That's that's a central theme in the book of Judges. And the judges are men that God raises up to administer his own rule in Israel. There is no human king in Israel. Israel is a unique nation. It has Yahweh as its king, and Yahweh exercises his kingship through these judges, these men that he raises up. And ultimately, that itself is an echo of God's design expressed in creation, ultimately that God will exercise his rule through his human image children. But Israel doesn't have a king like the other nations, a human king. It has Yahweh as king. But What the text also wants you to see is that in Israel's esteem, Yahweh himself is not king. The the thematic statement in in, um, Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Yahweh isn't even king in Israel. Each man is his own king. Each man is his own lord. Each man does what is right in his own eyes. And so you see this period of decline. 
the nation is declining. They're settled in the land. And Moses has warned, you know, when you get in and you're eating food out of fields you didn't cultivate and drinking out of well, you know, everything's easy for you, then be very careful. Your hearts are going to wander and you're going to end up departing from me. And this is already happening. And so you see this cyclical pattern in the book of Judges where you go from complacency to apostasy, to subjugation, a kind of exile in the land, the nations gaining power over them. Because they, even though they're settled in the land, they, they, they still haven't fully driven out all of the, the nations, you know, the, the Canaanite peoples. And so God allows these people to rise up against them, whether the Philistines or whoever. And once again, Israel's being oppressed. And when it gets so miserable for them, then they cry out to God and he hears them and he raises up another judge who's a deliverer who comes and who liberates them and restores them and the pattern starts over again. While the judge is alive, they tend to be faithful. Then the judge dies and then complacency sets in, life gets easy, apostasy, rebellion, subjugation that pattern happens over and over again that's that's what you see throughout the whole of the book of judges and that pattern which is pronounced in a very sharp way in judges was really true of israel's entire history this was the legacy of the nation but through all of this god keeps arising keeps delivering them keeps restoring them and they do the same thing over again and he arises and he liberates them and he restores them and they do the same thing all over again The pattern just continues over and over. And you see that failed sonship expressing itself also in Judges in a failed brotherhood. Part of the decline in Israel through the book of Judges is that the nation becomes more and more fractured, more and more fragmented. The tribes become more remote from each other, more distant their their unity begins to break down and it finally culminates in intertribal warfare they go to war against the tribe of benjamin and later when the kingdom is divided after david the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will actually fight against each other and form alliances with other nations to go to war against each other so this is a premonition of even what's coming but what provokes this intertribal warfare is what I say here is the second thing associated with the failure of their sonship, which is failure in their mission. Israel was to lead the nations into the knowledge of Yahweh through its faithfulness as son of God. We've talked about that over and over again. But instead of bearing truthful witness to the covenant God and Father, Israel ends up testifying against him by aligning itself with the nations around it. It does so through its perspectives, its lifestyle, its worship. And what you see recorded in the 19th chapter of Judges is Israel falling so far that it becomes indistinguishable from Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember in the Song of Moses where they're associated with Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens in that instance? A man who's traveling from Bethlehem um, back to Ephraim, 
they're going to stop near Jerusalem. And, and the, the servant says, don't stop here, the Jebusites. This is pagan land. We don't want to stop here. It'll be trouble. Let's travel on till we can stop uh, in a town that's our countrymen. And so they continue on until they're in a town of the, the Benjamites within you know, the, the, the territory of Benjamin. And men from the city come and they, they see this, this man and he's got his concubine and his daughter there. And they come and they're you know, trying to get in to have relations with this man, just like you saw at Sodom and Gomorrah. And this Israelite man of Ephraim tries to give them his concubine. He opens the door and puts his concubine out there, and they don't want her. But they end up um, basically raping her and, 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 and uh, brutalizing her to where in the morning when they open the door, there she is basically lying half dead or dead. And he puts her on his donkey, and he returns to Ephraim and then he takes her and he cuts her into 12 pieces and he sends the 12 pieces out to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what our nation has become. This is what we have become. We are no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And the 11 tribes are so incensed that they decide to go to war against Benjamin because these were Benjamites that had done this. This is how bad it's become. And so that's the way the book of Judges ends. It ends on this note of Israel is indif- they're indistinguishable from the nations in their rebellion against God. They've become the same as Sodom and Gomorrah who epitomized to Israel what, it would, what man, uh, the pagans, the Gentiles in their rebellion against God look like. So by doing what was right in their own eyes, Israel had effectively transformed its communion with its father in his sanctuary land into life within an idol temple. The whole land was defiled. The people were defiled. Everything was just coming apart at the seams. And what Moses and Joshua had warned them of has now come to pass that quickly within a few generations And despite the fact that God keeps arising and delivering and restoring, nonetheless, Israel just gets worse and worse and worse. Every man was his own Lord, and it was inevitable that they would seek a king in their own image, a ruler who would model their own notions of power and kingship. And this is where we will go next, the emergence of the monarchy. They say to Samuel, we we want a human king so we can be like the nations. We want a human king to reign. And Samuel is furious. The Lord is king in Israel. So they want a king so they can be like the other nations. And it'll it'll explain why they found in Saul the perfect answer to their desire. So the apostasy of judges bore its fruit in the emergent monarchy that we see in 1 Samuel. That's our flyover then from Israel at the foot of Sinai the renewal of the covenant, embarking on building the dwelling place of God, and then the 40 years through the wilderness and the first 300 years or so in the land. It's the same pattern over and over and over again. But through all of that is God's insistence, I will yet prevail. I will cause Israel to be Israel. And we know David will come to that place as the man after God's own heart. He will be the king that God desires for his people. 
Well, let me pray uh, as we close then, and we can have some discussion time. Father, I know there's a lot here, but um, my hope is that we can have a sense of the big picture. Our, our desire in this study is to uh, come to better understand the story that the scriptures tell, the way in which that story unfolds, the way in which it reaches its climax with the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And it is important for us to know the story because it's only by knowing the story that we can understand this person who arrives on the scene, the one who says, all the scriptures testify of me. And indeed, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. You would understand my words. You would understand the things that I do. You would understand why I came. You would understand the significance and the outcome associated with my own death, the meaning of my resurrection, as the Father has intended ultimately to see everything in his creation renewed and summed up in me. So, Father, I pray that you would help each one uh, to gain a sense of understanding of this great story. We don't have to master every single detail, but you have preserved this for us, and you have even fleshed it out in the, the centuries of the salvation history so that when the Messiah arrived on the scene, your people would be ready to recognize him and to embrace him. And as those who, who stand in the ends of the ages, the fullness of the times in which the Messiah has come and done this work, I pray that we preeminently would be people of the story, people who see in the story the Lord Jesus Christ and who can proclaim the good news, the gospel, that this story of promise and faithfulness has now found its yes and amen in him. So help us, each one, to grow up in all things into him who is the head. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.